This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Steve, we have an interesting podcast on this one. Uh, we are going to hit the science hard. Um, we get to sit down on this one with uh, provincial wild sheep and mountain goat uh, specialist Bill Jex. Um, Bill has been uh, obviously in the landscape here in BC for a long time now. And uh, he he reached out to the University of Alberta um, wanting to conduct a genetics study here. Basically, uh, a genetic study around dull sheep and stone sheep and, you know, uh, sort of uh, which species is where, where they, um, where the uh, uh, lines in the sand are in terms of geographically um, and uh, just trying to understand the uh, evolutionary history of the animals better. Um, and basically what happened is the U of A, uh, there was a professor there that, basically found a candidate. Uh, his name was Zijian Sim, uh, affectionately known as Sim. Uh, Sim took on the study, and uh, I'm just going to read it to you because I can't even memorize the name of the subject, let alone the content. But uh, Sim's study was management implications of highly resolved hierarchical population genetic structure in thin-horned sheep. So that's the, the one of his, he actually did I guess a two-part study. There was a paper released in 13 and then one again in 16 uh, on this, uh, on the genetic study on thin horn sheep. Um, this is a really interesting uh, um, study that uh, has come up in the wild sheep community several times. Uh, it has uh, implications for guide outfitters. Uh, obviously, if you're selling, selling a stone sheep hunt or a dull sheep hunt and you think you're selling dolls and you're selling stones, that sort of thing, that could be a factor. Um, so it's come up a few times in our community, um, and uh, Sim's name is often referred to. And I've always been interested in uh, Sim's study itself, and and really never knew a lot about him. So we reached out to Sim, had a a great conversation on this episode forty six. Um, Sim talks about the history of the study, how it came about, how he got involved, some of the implications. Bill's on the study on the call as well, and Bill gets to talk about you know, why they wanted to do the study, uh, the outcomes, how it's helped with their uh, management decision-making, that sort of stuff. So pretty cool call um, with these two gentlemen and uh, definitely uh, above my pay grade. There's a lot of science on this, but Sim does a really good job of dumbing it down for a guy like me that can understand what he's trying to articulate. And it's really interesting. They talk about the evolution and how these two species of doll and stones were basically separated during the last ice age. And that's why the evolutionary history of these two are different, because they were basically, there was a landlocked group of sheep 
in eastern BC in the Fort Nelson area, they believe, and they were the stone sheep. And then there was the pure dolls in, in high, further to the northwest that were um, isolated as well. And, and they evolved differently over a number of years. So really cool study. I think you're going to enjoy this one. And um, I, I sure enjoyed talking to Sim and Bill about it. Um, but before we go there, uh, are, we still have a couple days left on tickets on that uh, doghouse mm-hmm. um, tent trailer. So uh, I, we're going to draw that this weekend. So get in and get your tickets on that. Uh, we still have tickets available, and it's a really, really, really cool raffle. Um, $10,000 prize package. Uh, tickets are dirt cheap. Uh, they're 20 bucks or something like that. So um, make sure you get your tickets on the, on the doghouse. And our Wild Sheep raffles are launching on October 15th. So in a couple of days, our Wild Sheep raffles are going to be live. And we have a lineup this year that is. Oh yeah, we, yeah. We 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 keep stepping up, and people are like, "Oh yeah, we need to do this. We need to do that." And we just keep shooting for the moon, and we keep nailing it. It's it's incredible. Yeah, so we're pretty stoked about this. Uh, so anyway, uh, episode forty six: uh, Zijian Sim, Bill Jack. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Good day, gentlemen. Sim, Bill, how's things in Smithers and in Alberta? I guess Edmonton for you, Sim? Edmonton for me is just uh, trying to survive the pandemic, you know, like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. And uh, yeah, it's been a, an exciting year to say the least. Um, and Bill, how's how's things in Smithers these days? Well, it's certainly fall here. We've got snow on the mountain out the front window and uh, and the fall colors are, are in full swing. Awesome. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's that time of year. I'm down in sunny Victoria. I'm looking out the window and not to, uh, it, it, there's a million reasons why I'd love to live in Smithers, but looking out the window right now, it's 20 degrees, the sun's shining, the birds are singing. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, Sim, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and Bill, as always, you're a regular on the show and love having you and, and just the insight uh, you always bring to our community. Uh, Sim, this is really exciting for me. It's interesting. Um, the backstory is, uh, you know, I've been familiar with your study for years and I've talked a lot about it in the wild sheep community on the science end of things. And obviously it has some uh, effects or some considerations as well for, you know, the guide outfitting community and, and uh, hunters, um, you know, with the whole finaz and slam uh, issue and that sort of thing, uh, which really that's not why we're talking here today. But anyway, we've talked lots about your study more so about, you know, how it affects us as hunters and, and our, you know, our perspective and how things look. So pretty cool to have you on the show. And then interesting, we had um, um, Justin Spring from Boone and Crockett on the show a couple of weeks back. And we talked to Justin about how, you know, your study may have affected Boone and Crockett and their, and their uh, record system and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, Bill had brought up some points about that. We had some discussion on it. And I thought, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to have Sim on the call have some discussion about it. So uh, really appreciate you taking the time and really excited to chat about what your work is, what you've been doing um, and, and the effects it's, you know, it's had on the wild sheep community. So thanks for coming on the show. 
Yeah, no problem. Excited to be on the show. Cool. So I guess, Sim, let's just start off with um, who you are. So everyone knows the name Sim. Uh, nobody really knows your first or last name or whatever, uh, that part of it. Uh, so everyone just knows about Sim and his study. So, you know, uh, let's tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. So, um, you know, where did you go to school and, and how did this sort of, uh, how did you get involved in this study? I guess, where did that come from? Okay, so I started to study when, when I did my PhD at the University of Alberta with uh, Dr. Dave Coleman. Um, I Frankly, I didn't know that much about sheep before I started my PhD. Uh, I knew they were a cool animal. I was just kind of interested in, in kind of evolutionary and, and published genetic questions. So when, when, when the opportunity came up, I, um, I kind of jumped on it and it, it turned out to be a, a great study. Yeah, very cool. So... I guess then the thrust of your work is um, genetics work. Is your geneticist, or is that uh, is that fair to say, or um, is that kind of where that what led you to this um, down this path towards the wild sheep study and the evolution and that sort of thing, or or is it was it another area that got you into it? Right. So I, I was always growing up. I was always interested in in science and 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 conservation in general. And then during my undergraduate years, I, I worked in, in, in a genetics lab that did pop chain genetics. And that's kind of how it kind of sparked my interest in, in the topic. And, and so, um, yeah, so this generally just, just my interest from, from young, really. Cool. So, so let's, let's back the train up then. I'm just curious, like, did you grow up in Edmonton? Are you from Edmonton area or did, did you immigrate or how does that work? What's yeah, the story so, there? okay. So I actually, I grew up in Singapore. And okay, uh, cool. so, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if you know that much about, about, about the country, but it's, 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 it's kind of a city of 5 million. So I, I, I was interested in conservation, but I, I really haven't had that much uh, uh, contact with uh, uh, hunting and that kind of stuff that it, it doesn't really go on there. Uh, so I came to Canada in 2007 uh, for my undergraduate studies. So in 2007, so I did my uh, undergraduate degree in uh, ecology and evolution biology at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan in Kelowna. And then from there, I did a short stint at the Royal Ontario Museum studying population genetics of fish. And then, and then I kind of ended up in, in Edmonton to do my PhD. Very cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting. So that's what I was looking for. So yeah, uh, yeah that's a, a neat evolution. And yeah, there's not a lot of wild sheep in Singapore. Um, absolutely. I've been there. And uh, yeah, uh, so that that path has led you a long way from uh, uh, what you're studying in Edmonton. So you went to uh, Royal Ontario Museum. So, uh, and that was, so that was working for the museum or was that actually? Yeah, so I, I, I started my, I, I did my, a master's at the Royal Ontario Museum at the University of Toronto. So working on population genetics of uh, two different fish that are found in South America. And, and they kind of both have two very different life histories. So it was interesting just to study kind of, how the life histories affect the way that the, the populations cluster together. Cool. So then you ended up in Edmonton doing your PhD. What led you to, to wild sheep? Was that sort of your mentor or your, your instructor, uh, Dr. Coleman, was that, was he involved with that or did you just something you fell into or how, what led you to sheep? I guess, obviously the interest in conservation, but beyond that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So like I said, I was always interested in conservation and, and I guess, you know, when, when you're a student trying to look for a project, you, you can't really be all that picky about the, the, the organisms you work on. And I was just lucky enough that, it, uh, in fact, Dave, my supervisor, Dr. Coleman, and Bill had already, I think, I think he had some prior talks about using genetics to inform conservation and, and looking at how we can 
make better, more like biologically relevant uh, wildlife management units. So they, I think they had already talked about that project and they were just, I think, looking for a student. I think Bill maybe can elaborate a little bit more on that. They were just looking for a student and, and Dave kind of advertised the position and I called Dave and we, we kind of hit it off right off the bat. And, and I was lucky enough that this project was already going and there was already a lot of support from the community. So I was already able to just get on the project and, and get, get things going right away. So Bill, were you instrumental in that? Was that something that... Um, you reached out to University of Alberta and said, "Hey, we we have this study. We'd like done. Um, were you involved in that, or how does that how did that evolution come apart?" It, yeah, it uh, and and Sim's pretty humble there actually in some of what he said. So uh, I had been working on wild sheep and mountain goats for you know it's at that time be twenty plus years sort of thing, and I was noticing differences that I couldn't explain. Um, because they didn't have the science. So it was a, it became a science question around genetics and genetic representation and genetic expression and that sort of stuff. And, but at the root of that is uh, evolutionary history, right? So um, I talked with uh, Dr. Helen Schwancha and I wrote up a bit of a um, uh, hypothesis document, bounced it around with her. And then I asked her, you know, who's the best person to approach from an academic standpoint on this. And she right away said, you know, Dave Coltman at uh, University of Alberta. So I started conversations with Dave. Um, Dave, you know, he's a bit of a humble guy as well. And he said, uh, yeah, Bill, you know, you're gonna have some problems because I, I have picked up a bit of a reputation in the genetics world. Um, hunters, uh, some hunters have taken exception to work that I've done, but it was never done in a way that was, um, you know, trying to create problems for people. It was just sort of reporting his results. I said to Dave, you know, you don't worry about that. You worry about the genetics. I'll worry about the politics and we just need to find a good student. So it was, Dave said, well, I'll start the hunt. So he phoned me one day and said, he was quite excited. He says, Bill, I found the right person, the exact person we want on this. And he had looked at a number of different applicants and and uh, like I said, he was excited when Sim sort of raised his hand and stepped forward to say he was interested in this. And, you know, when you see the way this project evolved and the way that it turned out, um, he was bang on. Like, Sim's pretty humble, but he's a pretty talented guy. Cool. Now, there's a couple things I want to dive into there, and, and it's kind of on the politics end of things as well. And maybe we're putting a cart before the horse, so I'm going to come back to that. But um I think that what we'll do maybe here first, Sim, is is jump into what the study is. So for our listeners, let's talk about um, when uh, Mr. Dr. Coleman came to you and said, "Hey, let's um, you know, are you interested in this project? Talk about you know, kind of the title of the project and and the meat and potatoes behind it. You know, give us kind of the two minute overview on it, if you don't mind, Sim. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So. So generally, I was interested in the evolution, the, the project anyways, was interested in the evolutionary evolutionary history and, and population genetics of thinhorn sheep. And so generally, I'm interested in the way that genetic genetic diversity is organized and distributed in thinhorn sheep and, and why it is distributed and organized in the way that it is. So, you know, one of the striking features of thinhorn sheep is that we have these two different subspecies, stone sheep and, and, and doll sheep, that look so strikingly different and, you know, literally almost black and white, right? So, so the question has always been, so why do we have these two subspecies? Why do we have dark stone sheep and white doll sheep? And what led to the formation of these two subspecies? 
And, and beyond that, you know, what are some of the events in, in the species history that shape the evolution of these two subspecies? And, and, and moving beyond the subspecies, uh, we're also interested in uh, the way that individual populations and subpopulations of thin-horned sheep are distributed on the landscape. And, and what are some of the landscape level effects that are driving the, the, the divergence of these populations and, and subpopulations? And um, lastly, I was also interested in the genetic basis of horn size in thin horns. So, you know, one of the reasons we, we love these sheep so much is, is because they have these beautiful big horns. And so for this part of my research, I looked at the heritability of, of horns, horn size in sheep. So basically the nature versus nurture question. So how much of horn size is due to inheritance and how much of it is due to the environment or some, some other factor. Okay, very cool. So your, your focus in that study, so part B of it what, regarding the, the horn size was the genetic side of it, really, that you're really focusing on that aspect of it as opposed to the nurture side of it. Right, yeah. So, 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 so it's, 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 it's looking at, 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 at to, to what extent is due to inheritance and, and to what extent is due to, to non-genetic factors. So genetic versus non-genetic. Okay, so it's interesting. Um, I might be wrong in this, but I think it's Dr. Uh, Kevin Monteith out of Montana. Um, he did a, a pretty big study on the nurture side of things about you know how important horn size and and just even um, the the health of the sheep was based on that first few months. Was there any correlation? Did you do any work with that or around that at all? I think that was maybe after your study. Yeah, regardless. I think that, that was after my study, and as well, I, I was looking as you're saying, I was looking at at. Um, what is genetic and what is non-genetic. And so I wasn't actually able to look at what specific environmental factors are affecting sheep. Although we, we do know that, of course, environment matters a lot. But uh, what, what I was concentrating on was how much does inheritance matter in, in, in that horn size question. Okay, cool. So we're on that now. And I want to jump into the other stuff too on the, on the genetics and the history and the evolution. But let's talk about the horn size. What was your finding there? How important was that with so regards to So basically we found size? about 30%. So, so 0.3, 30% could be due to, to inheritance. And this is, of course, a, a very preliminary study. And, and I think, you know, be, we, we can go much further. So about 30% of horn size can be due to inheritance. And then about 70% is due to um, non-genetic factors. And then what also something else we're interested in is to see if we can find any genes or gene regions that, that are very significant for horn, horn size or length of base circumference. So we found two gene regions that, that, may, that may influence horn length, but that, that, that is a very preliminary kind of study. So I think a lot more work has to, has to go into before we really can, can answer that question. Okay, cool. Um... So let's go to the genetic side of things and the evolutionary side of things. Um, talk a little bit about your findings, I guess, that came out of that, um, you, you know, and regarding the, the stones and the dolls and the differences there. Let's talk on that a little bit. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so, so if you recall, so the first part of my research, we, we wanted really to look at, at the drivers of lineage divergence in, in the species and subspecies level. So here we're interested in how and why stone and doll sheep uh, diverge. So one of the things to know about the, the geological history of North America is that over the last few hundred thousand years, there's been a series of glaciation events, which basically meant that much of the continent was actually periodically covered in ice, where, you know, if it's covered in ice, that means plants and animals can't really survive there. So what that meant is that for the plants and animals of North America, the ranges had basically had to expand and contract with the advance and retreat of the, these two major ice sheets that we have on the continent. So the Western Cordilleran Ice Sheet, which is basically 
the west coast of North, North America to the Rocky Mountains, and then the Laurentide Ice Sheet, which is from the from the the Rockies and east. So you can imagine during a glacial advance that different populations or subsets of the species can get cut off from each other just due to the fact that you can't survive in places with ice. And if they can get cut off and become isolated in ice-free areas, which is what we call refugia, plural or refugium, singular. So during that time, if they're isolated from the rest of the population, they can diverge and form new variants or species or subspecies. So in, in the case of thin-horned sheep, we know that the, the major portion of the species spent the last glacial period, which is the Wisconsin glaciation, which ended about 10 to 12,000 years ago in the major refugium known as Beringia. So this is uh, basically modern day Alaska and Eastern uh, uh, Yukon basically. And so the question is, is there somewhere else in North America where some isolated populations could have been occupying? And if that might've been why the stone and dial sheeps have evolved. So in a paper published in 1996, Cato and colleagues proposed that there might be a sliver of land in northeastern BC near Fort St. John that remained ice-free due to what he's referring to as the asynchronous advancement of these glaciers. So if you imagine the two ice sheets in North America, during advance, they kind of close up and, and retreat, they kind of open up. So you can imagine them kind of like elevator doors. So what he's saying is that one elevator door was closing faster than the other. So before... So, so it, it started opening before the second elevator door closed. So there's a little space in the middle, a little sliver of moving space where it was ice-free throughout the whole of the last glaciation, uh, glacial period. And some sheep might have possibly been isolated and embarked on their own kind of evolutionary trajectory. And with that, we have a kind of a plausible hypothesis of how we got these dowel and stone sheep. So basically, the ancestors of dowel sheep got stuck in Beringia and then the ancestors of stone sheep could have been stuck in that minor refugium in northeastern BC, right? So the way we got at that problem is that we basically constructed a big family tree for thinhorn sheep, and we wanted to know which groups are more closely related to each other. So basically what we found was that the deepest split in the thinhorn sheep family tree is between sheep from northeastern BC, so close to where that minor refugium is, and the rest of the species. And that area is, is again, where we think that minor refugium might be. And what our data showed was that it is very likely that during the last glaciation, that thinhorn sheep population got split into two. Some of them got stuck in the major refugium in Beringia, and some occupied that minor refugium. And it is, during, it is this isolation in this different refugia that kind of caused the evolution of our stone and dial sheep subspecies, with the sheep in Beringia giving rise to the dial sheep and the, that small population in the minor refugium giving rise to stone sheep. And once, and once the glaciers started to retreat again and the populations expanded from their refugium and met in the middle, and the interbreeding between the dowels and stone sheep is what gave rise to this intermediate sheep that we like to call fan and sheep. So once we establish what the drivers of our subspecies, uh, what, 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 what drove the evolution of the subspecies, then next we wanted to know exactly where the divide of the two subspecies are. And, and that's, of course, has great um, uh, conservation implications and management implications. So what we needed to do in the next stage was to get many, many more samples so that we can finally map the species bound, the subspecies boundaries. For, so, so for that part of the research, we collected over 2,000 samples so that we can make sure that we have enough dots on the map where we can really finally map one, where one subspecies turned into another. So basically what we found was that the stone sheep basically occupied the Cassian Mountains, 
south. So the, the most southern tip of Yukon and northern BC, south of that is, is, is the core stone sheep area. And the core Dao sheep area is basically north of the Pelly River. And then there's a region between the two subspecies where hybrid individuals or the fan and sheep exist. So once we knew where one subspecies turned to another, then what we also wanted to know was what the geographical ranges of our individual thinhorn sheep populations and subpopulations are. So here the idea is that you know, we're all familiar with wildlife management units. And, and, and the way that wildlife management units are designated is mostly based on you know, maybe some geographical boundaries or political boundaries or jurisdictional boundaries. So we, what we wanted to see was if, if those wildlife management units that we have today are congruent with the, the actual populations on the ground. You know, so, so we can know if those wildlife management units are, are too big or too small, if, they, if they're interconnected, is there migration between the different wildlife management units. So say we find if, you know, if, if the management units are connected or maybe if they belong, like different management units belong to the same genetic population, then maybe when we set regulations for certain wildlife management units, then we need to be mindful of the effect of that regulation on, on other management units that may, be, that may be connected. And so also taking that concept one step further, if, if we find that populations cross you know, provincial, territorial, even national boundaries, then decisions make, made on one side of the border can potentially affect sheep on the other side of the border. So there's possibly a need for, well, for cooperation or kind of collaboration between the different jurisdictions. And so the idea here is that we wanted to give manager, managers and policymakers as much information as possible uh, so that they can make the, basically the best decisions. Uh, so what we found was that um, the populations of thinhorn sheep can be organized in, 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 in kind of a, a bunch of different hierarchies. So what, one way to think about it is we can think about the way that you know, human populations are organized. So, so I, we all live in the country of Canada, right? So, so it's not so surprising to anyone if I said, you know, people who live in Canada are more related to each other than people that live in, say, the United States. Right. So moving down from the country level, we have the provincial. So I live in Alberta, you two live in BC. So again, people who live in Alberta tend to be more related, uh, tend to, you know, tend to marry people or, or, you know, have kids with people that live in Alberta. And same for people in BC. So, so you, you kind of have these hierarchies where you have, say, country, province, city, or even neighborhood within a city. city. So Shiba kind of the same way. So the, you, you can have, you know, uh, the, the, the top level split, which is, you know, between species, and then you can have the subspecies division, and then different mountain ranges, and even different individual kind of local populations. So what we found was that the top level split that we found was between the two different subspecies, so the styles, dolls and stone sheep. So again, that's not, not that surprising. So within dull sheep, we found that they can be split into two major groups, the northern group and the southern group. So the northern group, which occupies basically uh, the Brooks Range, the Ogilvy Mountains, and the Mackenzie Mountains, and then the southern group occupying the Central Alaskan Range and the Coast Mountains. So within the northern and southern group, they can be broken down further. So say going from you know province to 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 different cities. So in the northern group, we found three subpopulations: one occupying the Brooks Range, one occupying the Ogilvy Mountains, and one occupying Mackenzie Mountains. And then in the southern group, we found two separate subpopulations: one occupying the uh, the the Central Alaskan Range, and one occupying the Coast Mountains. So for stone sheep, we found two major groups, basically one east of the Kachika River Valley and one west of the Kachika River Valley. And then the major group on the uh, uh, east of the Kachika River Valley can be uh, broken up into two smaller groups, one occupying the Stikin and, and, and Skeena Mountains, and one occupying the, the Cassie Mountains. Wow. 
<laughs> that is a lot of information, and that was fantastic and really, really, really interesting. So I, I've got a, a number of questions for you. Um, first of all, uh, samples. So this was uh, how long did this study take? You did your PhD study on this. How long did it, the whole undertaking take from beginning to end? Of- so, so active working time is about five years. So there, there were a few, a few different things happened. So I had a kid during the middle of my PhD, and then I, I also started a job. So the timeline kind of got jumbled up. But active working time about five years, and and, and it evolved a lot th- throughout the whole project. So when, when we started. It was really only supposed to be a master's project. So all we wanted, all Dave and, and, and Bill really wanted was, okay, let's let's do BC and let's see what we can find in BC. So then as we started, we started finding lots of interesting things and then and we, we kind of just expanded the project to include, you know, the, the, the worldwide distribution of Thinhorn Sheep. And, and that, I think, made, made it, you know, much more interesting. And so for samples, we're actually pretty lucky. So the, the main obstacle for doing a lot of these studies is, is really sample collection. And and say you if you work on some obscure you know small mammal that occupies all of all of North America, collecting thousands of samples is is essentially impossible, right? Like you you would need so so many people out there, lots of money just collect a bunch of samples. But we were lucky; all sheep that are hunted has to undergo compulsory inspection. This is this is not not new to this this crowd. So every time that you bring your sheep in for inspection where they drill the hole to put in the plug, they collect the horn shavings that come out of there. And so that's the, 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 the material basically that I use to extract DNA from. And, and we're lucky because uh, not only do we have the material already collected, we also have the locations of where these sheep uh, were shot, you know, what year they were shot, what regions they came for. And, 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 and we, were, we were really, 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 really lucky. And lots of people helped out. You know, I just want to give a quick shout out to, uh, Kate Nelson and Julie Klein from BC and, and Kyle Russell from UConn, they did so, so much work for, for us. And I, I'm always very, very grateful. And, and another thing is, you know, working on sheep, and I didn't know this before I started, is a lot of people are crazy about sheep. So we were so lucky that we, we got literally hundreds of samples from, from just individual hunters, outfitters, just organizations just sending us samples. And and so we were able to collect those. So those, those are where we, that, that's how we got our samples, just people helping us. Yeah, I, I, your study, I think, said there was 2,820 uh, 2, different samples that you uh, collected or, or, sorry, you analyzed. So, yeah, that's a ton of data. So how do you, like, what do you do with that data set? So Bill shows up and says, here's your 2,800 samples. You just, um, obviously, there's got to be. Uh, a spreadsheet and a lot of computerized stuff or how does that and and then obviously tying in the location data that's a lot of information to process so talk a little bit about what you you're dealing with in in analyzing 2800 samples yeah so basically there's a lot of so at at first you know uh, the the, basically the first year of 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 my degree i I basically had to work out a a system where where i I had to systematically catalog all these samples that that came in so, so I kind of worked out a system where, where I stored things on spreadsheets and I had a system of, of giving, like I, I'll give each, 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 each sample kind of a file number and then that, that way I can always track it back to, to, to the information. So anytime samples come in, you know, um, data will come in, there'll, there'll be a spreadsheet with all the location data, you know, sometimes we've got color and all that and year that it was, it was killed. And so I put it all on a spreadsheet and then kind of made the data all work together. So merging spreadsheets from from uh from from all the different jurisdictions and so it's it's basically just 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 organizational work so it 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 just it just took time to 
to just really just sit down and, and, and make sure we had all the data all, all squared away and, and, all, and, and we were sure, you know, what data connected to which sample, basically. And, um, okay. Yep. Sorry, no, keep going. I, I yeah, okay. So then once we have that, everything catalog, and of course samples are coming all the time, and then we had to work out uh, uh, some kind of protocol for you know, a large-scale extraction of, of, um, of these horn cores. So horn cores, the, the, the advantage of having horn cores is that, well, A, you, know, you, you get it from every single sheep. So, so it's a great way to get samples. Second, it's dry so, and, and it's flat, so it's, it's easy storage, right? Like you can go into little uh, like paper envelopes. You don't have to freeze them. You can just store them at room temperature. But the, the problem is, you know, horns are kind of like nails, right? Like it's, there's not a lot of DNA in it. So we, we, we had to spend basically the first year developing a way that we can not only effectively extract the DNA, but also do it in a, in, in a way that we can really scale, scale it up. So at first we only we were starting with, you know, like uh, maybe a dozen samples per extraction. But, you know, when we looked at the time, we, we, we knew that was just not, not going to work with, with, if we wanted a few thousand. So eventually we got to a point where each extraction we were able to do, you know, 200 samples. So, so a two-day extraction period, we were able to do, you know, 200 samples. So, so, and then we got, so we got it all working and then, and then we were able to, to, to extract DNA. So we, we, in fact, so the 2,800 samples was um, what we ended up with. We, we started off with about 34, 3,500 samples. That's what we started off with. And then 28 samples worked for, because some, some, you know, some, some samples might be old, some samples you know, might have been temperature abused. So not all of them would work. So we got about 70% of them to work, which, which I thought was pretty good. Very interesting, Sam. Now, just out of curiosity, you talked about um, the divergence of the, of the two spe- subspecies. And, and, uh, but did you... Did you go? Does it go further back? Do we know where these animals came from? Were they is is are they rooted in North America or you know ancestrally? Are, can they be tied to to Asian sheep or how does that work in terms of the genetics and the history of and and maybe I, I'm guessing your study wasn't focused on that, but I'm just curious if you can comment on that at all. Right. Yeah. So 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 the consensus within the literature is that sheep for all sheep from North America came from Asia. So, so I think Central Asia is, is where the origins of, of sheep really, really uh, came from. And then it was, it, 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 the, the timing is, is unclear because so, so, okay. So first of all, all sheep came from, from Asia and we knew that they, we more or less know, or there's agreement in the literature that they, they cross over the Beringia land bridge, the, 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 the land bridge between, uh, 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 Asia and North America. And that's how they got across, and that's that's because do, when 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 during glacial events, more water is in ice, so sea levels were a lot lower. So then there was actually a land bridge that connected Asia to uh, North America. So that's when that's when they came. Uh, the timing of it is hard because if you imagine glaciers expanding and 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 retreating, every time it retreats, it kind of scrapes away whatever kind of fossil record there is. So the fossil record for sheep in North America is actually quite poor. So, so I think the timing is, is still quite uh, in, in the air, but, but we know that they came from Asia. That, that much we know. And, and the most closely related uh, sheep uh, to the North American, two North American species, the thin horn sheep and, and, and uh, big horn sheep, it are the snow sheep in, in Russia. So that's also where it's the most uh, geographically uh, proximal sheep to our North American sheep. So that adds extra evidence that, that they came from Asia. Okay, fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the genetic profiles of these sheep. So we've got stones and dolls. We've got the fannins. I guess the fannins 
so we we consider them two subspecies, stones and dolls. Where do the fannins fit in? When you're um, creating a profile for these, they're they're not another subspecies. They they fall under, I guess, the stone or sorry, the stones, right? Yeah. So 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 uh, so it, it depends how you want to look at it. So so fannin we found. So the the fannins that are found in in southern Yukon and northern northwestern BC are a lot of them are hybrids. So so they they, they it's it's when the two, if you imagine the two uh, subspecies kind of expanding out of the refugium where they met in the middle is where is, is where all, all, all the fanons are found mostly. And so a lot of them really can be um, uh, attributed to one subspecies or another. They're just hybrids. They, they, they're just kind of in between. They're, they're kind of in between of, of, of stone and dal sheep. But what we found was that actually, in fact, a lot of sheep in, in southern Yukon especially that, are, that, that have some dark hair that used to be um, are classified as stone sheep, they're actually much more related to dal sheep genetically. So if they're much more related to dal sheep genetically, they, they, can, they can be stone sheep, right? Because if, if they're, they're more related to dal sheep, then they're dal sheep. So a lot of, the, a lot of these sheep that we thought were, were stone that have a little bit of dark hair are, are in fact dal sheep. So, so, so what, what we're saying is that color is not necessarily a great predictor of, of subspecies, which I understand is, is kind of a wild thing to think about since it's so striking, right? Like that, that is the thing that, that, that we, we see with our eyes, like dark stone, white dal. But in fact, what we found is it's just a little bit different. And, and it kind of makes sense, like dark colors tend to predominate, right? So if you have a light and a dark sheep breed, they, they, it will tend to be more dark. And even though, okay, so, so for, for example, right? Like if we make this an example, if we have 100% dal sheep and 100% stone sheep breed, by definition, the the offspring is fifty fifty, right? But if the offspring is, but the offspring in in this mating will probably be dark. So in in to our eyes, it looks like a stone sheep. But we know since we set it up that way that it's fifty fifty. So 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 color and and genetics can sometimes can can be you know confounding. So based on that, then from an evolutionary perspective, and we're talking centuries slash, you know, thousands of years, eventually that those, that black trade is going to migrate north and, and the sheep are just going to keep getting darker, darker, darker as they go farther north eventually, or, or am I wrong in that thinking? I mean, it's, it's plausible, but it's, it's kind of, I, I don't really know if I can really predict the future, so right. to speak, but, but it, it's, it, it's it's more likely for for when when a dark and a light sheep breed for for them to be dark and and I think we can kind of see that right like dal sheep are really the only white sheep and I think there's a good reason why there's you know so few uh they're, they're not others like you know the mouflon and argali they all they're all dark like they're they're very few white white species around I guess so it it it, it probably like if I if I take a guess you know darker sheep will probably be more predominant in the future, but it, it's hard to say. But I think right. maybe as hunters, you guys can really comment on that because dark sheep are harder to find, I think, than 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 than, than white sheep, aren't they? This is true. Uh, yeah, on the whole, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, there's exceptions to that, but so interesting. So on that note, Sim, um, with um, with the sheep, what what do you think, um, or do you have any information that the genetic trait of of color um, that we see in stone sheep that we don't see in dull sheep and, and we know why they split. So eventually all these sheep were one congruous group, obviously. And then what you talked about the ice age causing the split, 
what, why the color difference? Is do you have any evidence to suggest where that came from or what caused? No, that? you know, frankly, we, we don't really know why. And 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 during my PhD, we, we tried to look at uh, uh, the, what what kind of genes might be might be involved in 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 the color, but we 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 didn't we didn't really have uh, it, it didn't really result in much. So that, that's still an open question. So whoever wants to do a study, please do it. <laughs> um, Bill, maybe can we just touch a little bit on the management side of things? And, you know, what sort of implications did this study perhaps have on on your work? Um, you know, was there any change to anything? I don't think it did any regulation changes because when you get a thin horn, that's why we get a thin horn tag, I guess, right? It's for the region. It's not... So you could shoot a black doll sheep or you could shoot a white stone sheep. It's not going to affect um, the outcome. So can you talk a little bit? Was there any findings from the study that affected you and your job? Um, yes. We're working on the provincial thinhorn sheep stewardship plan right now. And uh, as Sim sort of described before, we want to use some of that genetic relationship information to understand um, or to apply our management hierarchy against, right? So if we know that different populations are connected, then from a manager standpoint, that's good because then we can consider that your meta population, your large population group. Um, and then as you manage the way we do in British Columbia uh, based on wildlife management units, which are smaller than those, than those genetic population areas, um, and then we have herds that live within those wildlife management units or span those uh, couple wildlife management units. It all sort of trickles back to that large umbrella population group. Um, it, so, yeah, we'll have more information coming out in the stewardship plan. We hope to have that wrapped up within the next year. And, and it will kind of, you know, explain that hierarchy of, uh, genetic populations and how that translates into subpopulations and herds and harvest, that sort of thing. So it's, it was, it's kind of, um, they're related, but they are subtly different. You know, our harvest, we look at more localized population information as opposed to that broad genetic population unit. But in terms of climate change and population resilience, that genetic population unit is what's relevant at that scale, right? So it's it there. There's different utilities for the different scales in terms of of being a manager's, um, you know, turning your mind to that. And then around the the origins, you know, what makes stone sheep dark? Um, there is some research that's been happening. Dr. John Wehausen is looking at that uh, question. Uh, he's also looked at doll sheep in the north and um, uh, he's trying to understand that so hopefully we'll have more information as he wraps up his research uh, a little bit more but it is it's sort of looking at the pre-glaciation um, history of, of those subspecies okay fantastic um, I'm gonna have a few more questions for you here in a second Bill kind of on the you know the consequences of the study but um before we do that i'm just going to go back to uh sim so your study concluded three years ago it was back in november of 18 i think you published um i guess uh, what was what was kind of your your findings 
Um, obviously, they were peer reviewed. What was the kind of feedback? Um, obviously, a bit of a controversial issue in some regards, um, especially you know when it comes to economics. Right? Uh, we we don't we can't forget the economics aspect of uh, of wild sheep and uh, that sort of aspect. So, um, and I'm going to talk to Bill a little bit about that. But was there any controversy? Let's start in the scientific community. Was there any? concerns or uh, controversy over this? And, and I know you worked with the three different jurisdictions. Can you just talk a little bit about that for us, please, Sam? Right, yeah. So so in terms of controversy, that there wasn't really that much controversy in, this, in the scientific community. So the, the kind of glacial-mediated evolution is, is, is kind of well accepted in, in the community, in the literature. So we know that lots of North American species, including, you know, so for example, mountain goats, um, they, they, the, the evolution is very much driven by this repeated glaciation of, of, of the continent. So not, not that much uh, 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 pushback. You know, it's, it's pretty well accepted, and I, and I thought our data was pretty robust. Outside of the scientific community, there, there was a little bit more pushback, but I think it was mostly pretty well accepted, and, and a lot of the pushback was coming from, you know, more of a curiosity and an interest point of view. And, of course, as you mentioned, you know, financially, of course, you know, I, 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 I do understand, you know, for a lot of the outfitters that affected the, 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 what, what they could, uh, uh, what, what, what kind of hunts they could, they could uh, offer to, to decline. So, so there's a little bit of pushback from that. But, you know, I, I, I haven't really gotten any hostility or anything. People were, were, were very accepting of the, of the result and, and fairly, you know, really nice about it. Uh, and, and I think... You know, I, I've given a few talks to the community, and and and, and people have been, you know, pretty 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 open to, to to that finding. And and in fact, I when I gave a talk at the Thin Horn Sheep Summit in Anchorage a few years ago, you know, so someone 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 said, hey, you know, you're saying that you know the the stone sheep really are only in BC, but I have, you know, I have this picture of this dark sheep in in northern Yukon. Like, what are you telling me? And 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 lots of people in the crowd like it's not about the color, and and when I once I heard <laughs> that, I, I knew I knew people understood, and and I knew kind of my job was done. Fantastic, good for you. So, um, on that note, Bill, um, you know, you you brought up a good point to me. You said science is science, right? So, you know, Sim is just presenting findings, and it's science. There's nothing beyond that. So, why? How can people be upset about it? Um, but on that note, Bill, can you comment a little bit? Like you're closely tied to, you know, BC and and kind of the guide outfitting community. Are you able to talk at all on that? Any experience with that, or any of the findings that you had when this report came out? I mean, the conversation's still going on today, right? So, Sims, uh, you know, the first paper was 2016. The second paper was 2018, um, and and as we all sort of heard and. Uh, the science is pretty pure and pretty consistent. Um, there really wasn't much. And really going into this project, when I was um, trying to find funding support to get it done, those questions did come up from, from different um, non-government organizations. They were like, well, you know, we're concerned about an outcome. And I, the commitment that I made to every one of those funders at that time was that we would not introduce politics into the outcome. The science is the science. The sheep will tell us where they belong. And Sim did a great job at presenting that and doing that work. And that's still the same. Now, the reality in the, um, the guided hunt world is that there are differences in, in hunts between different jurisdictions. Part of that is, you know, dollar valuations on the global 
scale and other is just market conditions between jurisdictions. And that's really not something um, that the province gets into. Like we, that's private business and that's about um, being able to promote your product. And uh, it's so as much as I've tried to provide advice um, to the business environment that's related to um, guided stone cheap hunting in terms of, well, this is what the science tells us. Um, we, you know, we're not in a position where we're telling people that they need to do things differently. And that's why, you know, if you look at Boone and Crockett, for example, their boundaries are between stone sheep and doll sheep are still um, hair color based. It's not geography based. So, uh, yeah, it, it's completely up to those groups to be able to do that. Um, and completely up to them whether or not they change boundaries or tweak boundaries. Okay, yeah, makes sense uh, for sure, Bill. Uh, on, another thing I have for you, you talked about, Sim mentioned this earlier, about collaboration with the Yukon and, or other jurisdictions, you know, working together and these, these boundaries and these government boundaries. Um, how much of that goes on do you, where you're working with um, – in, as an example for doll sheep in, in the Northwest and, and the Yukon territory, how much collaboration is there on working with these herds and, and managing that aspect of it? Is there anything at all um, or is there a lot of uh, nothing or just curious how that looks? So today and, and actually, um, you know, that was, that was an objective of mine when I started working on wild sheep was to start to talk to my counterparts in other jurisdictions. And we've benefited from technology, right? Here we are on a on a digital platform today talking about a subject. And, you know, before it was pick up the phone and try to catch someone at their desk. Um, so our our world has changed around us. It's made it a lot more open to conversation across jurisdictions. And we are able to collaborate a lot more now than 20 or 25 years ago when you didn't have the ability to just you know, send someone an email or, or have a Skype conversation or whatever. So I think we've benefited from that right now. We are, I think in really good and, and Sims um, project was really one of the ones that opened those doors of conversation. So, you know, spin off benefit to his hard work and, and the great work that he was able to do for guys like me was collaboration, working together with, Alaska and, you know, the territories. Um, and that came because Sims started generating product in BC and they were interesting findings. And I shared that with my counterparts and they were like, wow, that's really interesting. You think he'd take on some stuff from us? And I was like, probably. So it started like Sim described in BC, but it expanded across the range of thin horn sheep in North America because we had the ability to share that knowledge and work together. So should be good. Like we're, we're certainly in conversation a lot more now as a group. Yeah. And if I could just chime in, you know, like, like um, Bill said, we only started off with BC and then I think Yukon was the second one to join up. But, but once that kind of got going, Alaska and, and, and NWT were, were really, were really quite enthusiastic and they was, they sent us a lot of samples as well. So, so we were really, really lucky to get all that support from, from, from all these different jurisdictions and, and one thing i'd like to add to, to that earlier conversation about whether or not there's controversy sometimes i wonder if because i me I, I came into the sheep world really from the outside and and i really didn't have any 
any history or, or I didn't really, really wasn't connected to anyone in, in, in the industry and the, in the sheep world. So I, I wonder if that made it a little bit easier to accept the findings coming from me because I really have no, you know, I, I'm not weighted towards one side or, or, or another. And being an outsider, I, I, I really didn't know any of the controversy behind, you know, what is a stone sheep and all that stuff. Like I, I didn't, I never even saw a sheep before I started this, this, this project. So, so I think that was perhaps a little bit more helpful, like not having any of those preconceived notions going into it, you know, just, a, just allowing the data to, to, to kind of guide my, my conclusions. And then I know I remember talking to, to, to Bill at first about all this and, and I really didn't know what the implications were and, and I had to be filled in on a lot of that later on. Yeah, I, I think it does help too. And I think, like you said, being from a quote, um, you know, unknown party coming, you know, new to the table, there's no um, bias from our community either from the, the sheep, the sheep conservation hunter community where people are like, well, they're just trying to drive a government narrative or this or that, whatever the case may be. Right. So, yeah, I think that's a very valid point, Sim. You're just you're just reporting the science. You're not uh, trying to create a narrative or trying to steer, you know, uh, economics or steer a government uh, initiative or anything. You're just presenting the the facts. So um, whether that, not that I think that that's that happens or that's the case. I totally trust Bill to do a study on or uh, you know without bias. But uh, you know, it's coming from our community. We look at that and. You know, it's probably in our eyes, probably more pure in that sense, because there's we're not thinking that there's something going on. So yeah. uh, cool. OK, um, Bill, let's just talk a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, has this study changed the way you work? Has has the, these findings have any impact on on um, anything that you do? Um, you know, we talked about the, the geographical um, aspect of it. We talk about, uh, you know, the, the markers. Um, you know, the, the hair color stuff is, has there been anything that you've had to change the way you do your business as, uh, in your, in your role with the government? Well, yeah. So we've brought in regulations specifically based on the fact that we have the global population of stone sheep in British Columbia. So our global stewardship responsibility is significantly elevated than, um, you know, if, it, if, if it were to have gone the other way and it would have said that, oh, we, we have just a bunch of doll sheep. We really don't have stone sheep, right? So, um, and because of that, you know, you, the hunting fraternity will, have, will be familiar with the fact that we have prohibitions on pack animals for the use in thin horn sheep range. And that's because thin horn sheep are immunologically naive when it comes to domestic pathogens and a lot of the diseases that bighorn sheep have been exposed to over the course of uh, colonization and, and um, uh, just living in and around people in a closer way. So we have been able to use the research um, to identify how special this stone sheep resource is to get protections put in place that we likely would not have been successful at getting in place otherwise. And so it's been good. That's, that's what science should do, right? It should inform next steps and, and it should inform management based on risk. And that, that's really what we've been able to apply um, in that way. So I think that's a, a really good outcome, a positive outcome from this work. Awesome. Uh, Sim, back to you. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're doing today? So uh, the, you finished up the study three years ago. Um, I, where are you at? What are you working on? And, and what does the future hold for Sim? 
Well, so uh, I retired from academia when I when I finished my PhD. So I, in fact, so before I finished my PhD, I I um, I got a job with um, Alberta Fish and Wildlife. So today uh, I'm a forensic biologist uh, at Alberta Fish and Wildlife. So most of the work I do involves um, doing um, uh, forensic work in in support of um, uh, fish and wildlife poaching investigations, and uh, as well we deal with. Um, uh, bear like bear maulings, uh, uh, cougar maulings, for example. So what we'll do if there's a there's a bear mauling in in Alberta is that we'll try to um, develop a profile of the bear that is responsible for the attack. So usually we'll get you know the victim's belongings, so clothing or or shoes, for example. See if we can find any trace of the bear. So sometimes uh, you know saliva on the bite mark or um, hair. Uh, that the bear left behind. So once we have a profile for the bear, and then once the seals go out to trap the animal, then they can get a sample from the bear that they trap, and they can bring it to the lab. Then we can tell them if they trapped the right bear or not. So that's that's one of the one more exciting things that we do uh, in in our lab. And then uh, I also recently uh, became an adjunct professor at the department Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alberta. And my role mainly would be to uh, conduct research in wildlife forensics and, and supervise students doing forensic projects. Cool. Uh, any more sheep projects on the horizon? I guess not necessarily per se. Hey, we can't convince you to do another study for us? Well, the thing is when you leave a lab, the, the, the animal stays with the lab and you leave with a degree. So uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, <laughs> you, 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 you can't, it, it's hard to keep, keep that because I think the, the 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 boss of the lab kind of wants to keep that uh you know uh keep that thing going which which is fair enough right? of course I, I just jumped in again, like I said like I you know uh yeah I I mean Bill and I actually you know we 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 come together and write a few articles once in a while and uh and and you know anytime you know there's there's a, a opportunity to present I always uh, enjoy presenting in front of the sheep community so that's kind of my ongoing work with uh with with sheep but other than that no the active research is is there's actually another student working on, on Thin Orchard right now, and her name is Sarah Santos at, at Dave's lab. And if you guys want to interview her, I'm sure she'll have a lot of interesting, interesting things to say. Now, is she following up on your work or obviously genetic work if she's working under Dave, but um, is she following up on what you're doing yeah, or is she? A lot of what I'm her? doing, and as well, she's actually looking at the interactions, the genetics between thinhorn sheep and bighorn sheep. So that, that was something that we really wanted to look at uh, for my thesis, but we just kind of ran out of time. But yeah, there are lots of interesting and, and exciting things that she's doing these days. Cool. So on that note, that's one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, dolls are so heavily concentrated in the northwest of British Columbia, as we know. Um, you know, why don't we ever see any movement of dolls outside that area? Is it just, it's such a small population and, you know, obviously you'd have to have a large population, enough population move to, you know, sustain that bigger population. But you know, it really hasn't changed. In a hundred years, are we going to see doll sheep down farther south in the Cassiars, or you know, or or will they probably stay there in that area? Because I know they are connected to the Yukon. So, why why haven't we seen more of that, or is it just a, a function of time? Yeah, I think some of it is a function of time, and some of it is is geographical barriers. I think there's some pretty significant geographical barriers, so like Teslin Lake and Edlin Lake, that because kind of in that region, so it might be just hard for for the sheep to kind of cross over, and and, and as well, you know. Like we talked about earlier, dark colors tend to predominate, right? So, so even if 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 doll sheep were to migrate south and interbreed with stone sheep, maybe they will look more like stone sheep. So maybe there is movement going on, and we're just not seeing it. 
and, and frankly, you know, in a genetic study like that, for, for our study anyways, we're just taking a snapshot in time, right? So without, without, without having samples that span, you know, a huge temporal kind of, kind of, kind of span like over a few hundred years, it's really hard to know what the exact movements uh, uh, of those two different subspecies are. And, and, and again, with the, with the glaciers kind of scraping off whatever fossil records that are available, right, usually what we'll do is we'll look at the fossils and see, you know, how, how, how the subspecies or even species are, are moving through time. But that's just hard to do because, you know, the, the glaciers remove a lot of the fossils. So it's, it's, I think it's hard to say. It may, they might be moving. They may not. I, I just can't say at this point. Okay, very good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, fantastic, Sim. Uh, I've taken a lot of your day already. We tried to do this yesterday. We couldn't get the technology to work. So I want to thank you, Sim, for taking the time. Bill, as always, uh, before I wrap up, is there anything that you, either you gentlemen, would like to share with you know our, our hunter conservation listener group? Um, anything that's worth uh, noting or anything that I missed or didn't ask you about today? Um, nothing that you didn't ask, but if I could say something, you know, I, I, I'm very thankful to be part of this project. And, and I, before I, I entered the sheep world, I, I, I couldn't have imagined, you know, how much support I, w- I would, I would get from, from, from the community. And in fact, sometimes I think, you know, I tell my mom, you know, like that the sheep people care more about my research than like any, really anybody else. And, and I was just, <laughs> just, just really grateful to be, to be part of it for, for the few years that I was involved in and, and, and just really happy. And, and a really fond memory. Whenever I think back to, to my time doing my PhD, I always smile because it was such a great time. I appreciate that, Sim. Bill, anything else? Oh, well, I mean, the yeah, like like Sim said, the, the audience was hungry for that information and really accepting of the information and, and enthusiastic about the work. And you don't get that across the spectrum of, of interest groups. So I think that's another thing that makes sheep and goat people and hunters, um, you know, a little bit different is they are so interested in in the animals that they pursue, whether or not that pursuit leads to harvest or not. They're just really, really keen on understanding as much as they can about that that animal. And and so Sim's work certainly helped with that. And it still lives on. Like you know, Sim noted we've we've wrote a couple little articles here since he quit his, uh, since he finished up his project but his work is actually I've uh, pulled him into the thinhorn plan development to give some advice in terms of metapopulation st- structure and how we would build our population hierarchy mapping um, so he's he's still providing advice even though he's not doing research in that area we're still drawing on that wealth of knowledge well, fantastic. Well, uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you both. Sim, uh, very, very interesting study. Um, I did enjoy perusing it. I'll admit that there was a lot of it that was a little above my pay grade. So, uh, But it, that said, a very fascinating study, uh, really important work and, and just uh, interesting to see the science behind all of it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to reach out to Sarah. I, I'm really keen to learn more about this and hear the work that she's doing. And and always, Bill, we appreciate everything that you do for our wild sheep and everything in BC here. So, gentlemen, thank you both. Um, hats off to you, Sim. Best of luck with your career. And uh, uh, we'll uh, try and have you out to BC to one of our shows so you can be um, a speaker for us. We'd love to, to hear more from you. So yeah, thanks again, I'll, gentlemen. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.